0: This is Michael Cox for the InCommon podcast. This is the second in the Future Fisheries Management series that we are producing in collaboration with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. Like the other guests in this series, I met today's guest, Bubba Cook, at a fisheries policy workshop last year at the University of Pittsburgh. Bubba is currently the Western and Central Pacific Tuna Program Manager at the World Wildlife Fund, or WWF. Bubba's career has included multiple phases. He obtained his law degree from Lewis and Clark Law School, then working for the U.S. National Marine Fisheries Service in Alaska, where he led a team in the implementation of a fisheries catcher program, also known as an individual transferable quota program for the North Pacific crab fishery, made famous by the TV show, The Deadliest Catch. Bubba later joined WWF's Arctic program to support fisheries conservation and management efforts across the Bering Sea from the Russian Far East to Alaska's remote indigenous communities. In 2010, Bubba joined the U.S. Peace Corps and served in Fiji, where he supported several grassroots marine conservation projects over two years. And since 2012, Bubba has worked, as I indicated before, as the Western and Central Pacific Tuna Program Manager for WWF out of Fiji in Wellington, New Zealand where he focuses on improving tuna fisheries management at a national and regional level in the Western and Central Pacific Ocean through policy improvements, market tools, and technological innovation. During our conversation, we discussed lessons that Bubba has learned at each step of his career that I just described. And I asked him about the recent WTO fishing subsidies that were a central topic at the fisheries policy workshop where I met him. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bubba Cook. So Bubba, as you know, we met last year at a fisheries policy workshop co-hosted by the Mercatus Center at George Mason and the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. Before coming back to talk about this workshop and what brought each of us there, I'd like to start by asking you what I call the origin story question, which is what led you to pursue a career in fisheries management and governance? When you look back at the arc of your career, how do you make sense of it?
1: Yeah, well, I grew up on the Texas Gulf Coast um, about probably six minutes from the beach and, um, you know, spent my entire childhood, you know, fishing and, and you know, playing in the water at the surf and, and you know, basically, you know, spent my entire young adult life uh, out on the ocean. I worked at, on a charter fishing vessel when I was um, in high school. And uh, my father and grandfather had both commercially fished for a period of time, so it was kind of in my blood from the very beginning. And one of the things, or a couple of the things that I, I witnessed growing up, was uh, the near collapse of the red drum population in the in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, during my my and uh, my teen years, uh, in uh, preteen years and uh, and then also the uh, shrimper blockade um uh, when the imposition of the uh, turtle excluder devices were put in place which uh, caused me to be stranded offshore on the vessel that i was working on and so there were all these conservation issues that that i could see firsthand that i grew up with that uh, you know had an impact um and and i continued to see those those challenges as i you know joined the navy straight out of uh, high school and and started to travel across the, the Pacific on the vessel that I was stationed on. And because I had that background in fisheries, every port that I'd pull into, I'd go down to the docks and try and, you know, chat with the local fishermen and and kind of learn about, you know, their life and, and the experience they were having. And I, I began to see a common theme everywhere that, that I would pull in. And that the fishermen and, and whatever broken English or, or pantomime you know we could demonstrate would we'll talk about how you know they have to travel further and fish harder than their grandfathers and fathers did, and and that it was clear that there were you know declining stocks uh, around the globe. And so I took that that passion for the ocean and that experience and seeing those conservation challenges. Um, and and channeled it into uh, what ultimately became my career. Uh, I went back uh, and left the Navy after six years and, and went to Texas A&M University where I got a degree in fisheries and aquaculture. Um, I, I, I was fortunate in that I was six years behind many of my peers who were then in PhD programs. And, and uh, you know, while I considered you know, uh, pursuing uh, further education, I knew I wanted to, to pursue further education. I, I was witnessing you know a number of my my peers under uh, the thumbs of uh, tyrannical major professors, and i I didn't want that. And so i I thought law would be um, a, a good uh, path to to take. and and it was absolutely the right decision in in my view. So I went to Lewis and Clark College uh, in Oregon and uh, received a a Juris Doctorate with a certificate in environmental and natural resources law before going to Alaska to work for the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, in Juneau, uh, where a couple of the projects that I did straight out of the gate were uh, managing the halibut uh, subsistence catch and developing regulations for the the subsistence fisheries working with the indigenous Alaskans across um, the region. Uh, and then uh, developing or leading the implementation of the Crab Rationalization Program, which is one of the largest and most complex uh, uh, individual fishing quota programs uh, in existence. And um, and so after a number of years with the National Marine Fisheries Service, a uh, position became available with the World Wildlife Fund uh, in the U.S. and so it was a, a position focused on transboundary uh, uh, stocks and that involved the uh, salmon fisheries and, and the ground fish fisheries in the Bering Sea. And it would allow me to work in, in Russia and uh, the U.S. And, and that was a, a fantastic experience, uh, you know, very educational and uh, it helped me gain some perspective on operating across different governance structures and, and. Uh, and different approaches to particularly uh, conserving transboundary species like salmon, which swim across the entire ocean and, and are caught in multiple ways in multiple places. Um, after a few years there, uh, my wife and I decided that we wanted to, to give back to uh, the global community and uh, join the United States Peace Corps, which brought us to Fiji. And we spent a couple of years in Fiji doing grassroots um. Uh, work there. And for my part, I was doing conservation work in a small village um, and with some uh, ministries there in, in Fiji. And uh, and then went from uh, there to taking the position that I have now as the Western and Central Pacific Tuna Program Manager for, for WWF. And so it's a bit of a circuitous route, but there was always a, a, an ocean and conservation theme and uh, and it's been really valuable to to have that experience. Um, you know, for instance, the the crab rationalization program that we put in place in Alaska was uh, what we expected a, a bulletproof management system, and by all rights, it is it is an incredibly uh, focused and and um, you know a very effective management system. Uh, but even in the Best conditions for a management system when you have all the nuts and bolts in place to ensure that every bit of catch is accounted for, down to broken legs on the crab, for instance. Um, it, you you can't account for climate change, and that's what we've seen uh, in the Bering Sea is is a a collapse of the Bering Sea uh, king and and uh, Tanner crab fishery. And you know, being able to to have that experience and communicate that to our, um, you know, Pacific leaders uh, as part of the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries uh, uh, Commission context has been invaluable because being able to point to those instances like, you know, look, we have to be precautionary about the way that we manage these stocks because, uh, in spite of our best efforts, you know, climate change is coming. It's going to have a, a tremendous impact, and and we have to be prepared for for how to address those changes. and And I, I think uh, as a direct result of, of that kind of advocacy, you know, we've we've seen, for instance, the Western Central Pacific Fisheries Commission um, put a, a standing uh, request to incorporate. Uh, climate change impacts into decisions that are made uh you know just a couple of years ago so that's that's the kind of thing that that i think is really valuable about the the edu- education pathways that we take and you know life is about chances and choices and and um, uh, you know we we all have the opportunity to make those choices those chances come along uh infrequently and and all we can do is, is hope for the best and i i feel like in my case i i've been really very fortunate and and um And and lucky that that I've landed
0: where I have. Bubba, have you continued to use and benefit from your legal background through these different experiences and positions? How do you view the value of your legal education looking back on your career now?
1: Uh, absolutely, I, I I don't regret pursuing a, a a law degree at all. You know, I I, I did work at a law firm uh, in Alaska for a short period of time, basically just long enough to decide that I didn't want to work as a lawyer, um, and uh, but it, it's been invaluable from a policy perspective. You know, they they talk about how uh, when you go to law school, they teach you to think like a lawyer, and it's invaluable to be able to put yourself in the shoes of another party and understand an argument from a different side. And I think that's what, um, uh, what the, uh, legal profession does very effectively because you have to be able to craft your own arguments to, to be able to rebut those other arguments. And if you cannot see the issue from all sides, uh, you cannot effectively function as a, as an attorney. So, um, from a regulatory perspective, I mean, that's something I found incredibly useful in the regulatory division I was working in with National Marine Fisheries Services, is being able to understand the nuances of language and how things could be written in such a way to uh, box in a, a particular uh, approach to to conservation or, or management. And, and that's... Uh, no less true in the Pacific and the international context to be able to, you know read through uh, you know these international agreements like the the uh, WTO um, subsidies agreement and that kind of thing and and have a good and understanding of why the language is constructed the way it is and and what the intent is behind each section and and uh, where the loopholes are. Um, you know so I, I thought that that was really intriguing about uh, the, uh, the event that you and I attended, uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, that it, it was really focused on addressing some of those, um, you know, those deficiencies and, and improvements that could be made in, in the, the, uh, world trade organization agreement on subsidies.
0: So you mentioned your work on the crab rationalization program, Baba. the work rationalization is doing a lot of work here. Am I correct that this is referring to a cat share program? Uh, Indeed, it is a catch-share
1: program. It is an individual fishing quota program uh, administered by the the National Marine Fisheries Service, or NOAA Fisheries.
0: I remember during the workshop that we attended in Pittsburgh that the topic of catch-share policies came up a fair amount. Could I ask you whether your experiences with this specific instance of this type of program influenced your opinions about the broader type of policies? Um, Because they remain kind of in equal parts popular and controversial.
1: Yeah, and and you know it is it is a a, a sword that cuts both ways. Uh, unfortunately, I am from a purely management perspective. Uh, there is no system that is better than a catch share program, whether it's IFQ or territorial use rights fisheries, or or however it might be described or constructed. Um, because when you have output controls, you can better determine the the impact uh, on the resource. Um, you know. Now that said, uh, there are absolutely clear social implications um, for the application of, of catch share programs in whatever context. Um, you know, in in the extreme, uh, you can have catch share programs which basically hand over all the rights to the, the wealthiest fishers. And if you don't put uh, uh, measures in place, the construction of those programs, then you will inevitably end up with uh, a consolidation of quota, a consolidation of power, and a consolidation of influence upwards to the most uh, uh, wealthy and powerful interests in the fishery. But with that in mind, you can put mechanisms in place to ensure better uh, distribution of the benefits of the fishery. Uh, You know, for instance, community quota programs that uh, where the community actually owns the the quota and determines how and when it's fished and and receives the maximum benefit from the resource that that goes directly back into the community. Um, You can also, for instance, like what was done with the Halibut and Sablefish IFQ program uh, which was to ensure that the characteristic of the fleet at the time that the quota system went in place was maintained so that you have everything from you know 20 foot you know uh, small vessels up to the you know 100 meter freezer longliners that, that that have access and, and benefit from the fishery and that there are, are quota classes that are maintained to ensure that too much quota can't be consolidated upwards and so you can, you can design any program to achieve the objectives that you want it to achieve. Uh, and whether that's a completely community-focused uh, quota program that benefits only the communities and, and uh, is prosecuted by small vessels, up to, from a purely management and enforcement perspective, you know, if you had one vessel out there catching all the fish going to a single market, then you've got complete control over the fishery, but you have some really perverse uh, socioeconomic impacts as as a result. So, you know, it's it's easy to demonize quota programs as, uh, you know, as potentially evil because of you know some of the the impacts that they've had in in certain locations, but the quota programs are just a tool. Quota you know management is just a a management system, just like any other management system. And if you look at the the broader perspective of uh, fisheries management over time, uh, Olympic style fisheries management with input controls has consistently failed, um, and we've seen it in myriad locations around the world. Um, you know the, the Northeast US is a, a perfect example of um, where you just have input controls in place that ultimately lead to a collapse of the fishery because the race to the fish is just simply too strong and the, the economic interests to, to chase the fish down to the very last one uh, are, are too strong.
0: Well, by Olympic style fishing, I believe you're referring to the temporal or seasonal bans which have led to what are known as fishing derbies. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so Olympic style fishing, where it's a, a shotgun start and everyone goes out and fishes as hard as they can over a fixed period of time and, you know, trying to put, you know, gear limitations in place or time restrictions, or, you know, the, the amount of input you put into the fishery to harvest the the uh, actual uh, resource, a, a certain amount of the resource, um, you know, where you have, you know, you can have the best fishery science in place that determines the the, the total allowable catch and the allowable biological catch, but, uh, you know, it's really difficult to control how fast and how hard, uh, the, the whole fleet fishes. Um, you know, it's, it's more challenging to do that than to simply say you get 10,000 pounds of quota. When you're done, you have to come in and you're done for the year. Um, and that way you have a, a very discreet, uh, clear allocation that is, um, much easier to incorporate into the the management and, and, and an enforcement system as
0: well. And Bubba, you mentioned during your time in Alaska that you engage with Indigenous peoples there. Could you talk to me about the impact that those engagements had on you and your perspectives on natural resource governance?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the thing is with fisheries management, it's not just about commercial fisheries, it's it's about everyone who targets the resource and we all have an impact and we all have a responsibility to ensure that the, the resources is, is managed appropriately. Um, And, you know, my experience in Alaska, I really enjoyed working with the Alaskan indigenous communities because for them, you know, it it wasn't about, you know, making a profit. There was there was cultural and social elements to, you know, going out and harvesting halibut. And, you know, these are truly community uh, fisheries that have strong cultural ties going back thousands of years and you know, because of increasing uh, impact of, of the commercial fisheries on the, the uh, subsistence, uh, it, well, just the overall stock in general, it was making it harder for some of the subsistence guys to be able to go out and um, and harvest the the uh, uh, the halibut that that they needed and wanted for their their communities. And so, you know, we had to come up with a way to ensure that they were able to uh, maintain access. To uh, the halibut resource and create really just the policy and the political positions that um, ensured that the Alaska Native communities were going to continue to have uh, access and and uh, and a discrete uh, opportunity to go out and continue to, to harvest the resource. So we designed the Alaska uh, subsistence halibut uh, regulatory uh, system, which you know is a system of of. Permits that allows a, a certain level of gear and hooks and and um, opportunities for the um, Alaska natives to to go out and, and harvest subsistence for customary and, and cultural purposes. Um, so it, you know it it really helped confirm my interest in ensuring that everyone benefits from this resource, whether it's you know in the case of the Alaska natives, you know subsistence rights to to the resource. Uh, or recreational fishing which you know we've seen conflicts arise uh, for instance in the red snapper fishery in, in the gulf of mexico and and also the the charter halibut fishery in in, in alaska that uh, it, it's a common pool resource and if we're not all Working together to ensure that we're managing it effectively, then we all lose. Um, so you know it's important that that we all do our part to to manage the resource collectively, and we can only do that if um, if we're all uh, participating and and contributing to the the management process that that ultimately uh, holds all of us accountable.
0: And you're currently the senior fisheries program officer at the World Wildlife Fund or WWF. Bubba, could you describe what your current goals of your position are and what are the primary activities that you conduct to accomplish these goals?
1: Yeah. So I guess if I had one overarching goal or objective at this point, um, you know, given the history that, you know, I've experienced working in fisheries in different parts of the world is that I I really would just like to see reality-based fisheries management, where we have the most accurate uh, and, and most precise science to to manage the fisheries that we have full accountability across the fisheries. I think one of the challenges that we face is that, you know, we in many places in the world, we use indiscriminate fishing gear that um, that catches a lot of stuff that we don't intend to catch uh, that very often goes unaccounted for. So, uh, one of the the big areas of focus for me in recent years has been the, the deployment and um, and protection of uh, fisheries observers in in whatever context that they serve, and because that's the most accurate assessment that we can get of uh, what's actually happening at sea is when we put independent third party observers on board fishing vessels um, to ensure that um, what's being reported as caught is indeed what is caught. Uh, because if if you're not fully accounting for the, the removals in the fisheries, then eventually over time, you know, it's it's like someone withdrawing from a bank account without your knowledge. Eventually, you're going to dig down into the principal, and the fishery is going to stop producing the interest, you know, the surplus uh, production that, that we ultimately uh, enjoy. And when you start mining the fishing resource, that's when you see you know basically overfishing and you see the collapse of those fisheries and and none of us wants that so so i think that's the the biggest you know broad generalization of the focus and of course now uh, observer coverage has extended into technology tools that uh, such as uh, cameras on vessels that that uh, supplement or complement um, human observer coverage and in addition to many of the other technology tools that um, Uh, have become ubiquitous through the use of uh, vessel monitoring systems and and automated identification systems uh, that uh, send out an active signal that we can track vessels, but also many of the the passive techniques that we can use um, uh, a number of the satellite technologies that it doesn't matter whether a vessel is transmitting a signal or not, we can still see them on the surface of the ocean. Um, so creating greater transparency and and uh, traceability and accountability from uh, the vessel level all the way through the supply chain. Because at the end of the day, you know, we all contribute to uh, in the impact on fisheries because the, the world uh, eats fish. And, you um, and it's important for consumers to know where their fish comes from and, and the uh, the retail markets that service those consumers as well to ensure that they're sourcing that fish from places where, you know, it, it's not being overfished and that there aren't human rights abuses occurring. And, um, and that, um, you know, we ensure that we are effectively managing our fisheries wherever they may occur around the globe. And that's a, a, a very big challenge, but... Um, but one that I, I hope that I'm able to contribute to in in my daily activities, um, which brings me to the second part of your question. Uh, which, sorry to be so long-winded, but uh, it, it's it's such a, a complex subject; it's it's hard to to cover everything in just a, a snippet. So you know, my my daily work extends across uh, several uh, different i guess uh buckets of work and and the the first bucket is the uh, policy and advocacy uh work that we do so developing positions that that we take into various uh international and and regional fora to promote uh, conservation approaches to to how we manage fisheries and and so that involves, um, you know, the the standard advocacy of, of providing written and oral interventions at these large multilateral meetings, um, negotiating with uh, various delegations around the table to support uh, those positions, and, uh, and and basically where necessary, you know, pounding the table to to hope that that people listen, um, you know, to to reason when it comes to managing our our fisheries and and. Part of that is also doing as a lot of the the media and publications that go out to you know not just our membership but the general public. You know, we'll we'll do uh, WWF in general and and other uh, conservation non government organizations or NGOs will do um, media stories that that go out to uh various publications to to increase the level of understanding and support for for conservation measures a, across um uh, you know the 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 local to the national to the regional to the the international and and um you know it, it it may may seem um like it is kind of an indirect path to get there but those um you know stories are are what builds awareness and uh, and that awareness is what drives the public's motivation and and action, and and that's what ultimately leads to change, uh, whether it's you know in the halls of Congress at D.C. or uh, you know halfway across the world and in EU Parliament uh, you know in Belgium or even in the regional fisheries management organizations like the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission where I work you know that that um, influence is is important. Uh, the second bucket of work that uh, that I engage in is uh, regular analyses that we put together. So, you know, for instance, this is where the legal background is, has has uh, become very helpful in producing legal analyses and policy analyses, and in some cases, scientific analyses uh, that go before the the various decision making authorities, whether that's at a national level or a um, uh, regional level uh, with the regional fisheries management organizations, you know, crafting uh, you know well-founded legal and policy analyses, such as uh, one that we submitted uh, a number of years ago on the submission of of uh, operational data, which is basically the the basic uh, reporting from in this case longline vessels that were engaged in the the Pacific tuna longline uh, fishery that uh, had claimed the The countries responsible for these fleets had claimed that they had a domestic legal constraint that prevented them from providing the granularity and and the uh, uh, the uh, information such as as catch and set and uh, you know various aspects of the actual operational characteristics of the the fleet uh, to the Western and Central Pacific fisheries commission. Um, and so we actually did a, a you know collaborated with the lawyers and in Korea and Japan to to research uh, what those uh, domestic legal constraints were and it turned out that those domestic legal constraints did not exist and as a result of that for the first time in in more than 14 years at that point um the uh, uh, the operational data is, is now being provided on a, a regular basis because we were able to to uh, call out that uh, discrepancy in in a way that um, maybe the other countries around the table wouldn't have been able to so the as an ngo that's that's an important um, approach that that we're able to take from an objective third party perspective to be able to come in and develop a, a, a you know a particular analysis or an approach uh, through a um, a research document to to put before the 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 various decision makers as uh, you know evidence as a, a it's almost like developing a, a case that you're taking into a court in many ways um, and to establish the foundation for why a certain action is is needs to be made and and so that's the the second bucket and then the the third bucket uh, of work that that I'm uh, generally involved in and and it kind of. Uh, Varies from from time to time, depending on the various uh, approaches that that we take with respect to technology. But technology implementation, so actually, putting you know kit um, on vessels or or uh, developing various approaches to technology implementation uh, across the Pacific. And uh, the most discrete example that I can give is uh, back in 2018, we did one of the first uh, blockchain traceability projects to, to trace uh, tuna that was caught in Fiji uh, all the way to events in New York and San Francisco <clears throat> to show that it could be done to use a, a distributed ledger to to fully transparently trace, you know, a, a fish from the point that it came over the rail all the way to the the markets. Um, and you know, of course that creates all kinds of opportunities with respect to mass balance reconciliation. Uh, to you know, basically ensuring that you know someone who scans a QR code on the piece of fish that that they ate at those events uh, that it was demonstrated could see the the story of that fish going all the way back to the vessel and understand that you know there's people in a process involved in the in the uh, production of that fish and and that, you know the decisions that they make as consumers has an impact. Uh, on you know where they source from and how that fish was produced and and, and that kind of thing and and we saw that evolve into um, ultimately into the Open SC platform which is a, a joint venture between uh, Boston Consulting Group Digital Ventures and and WWF Australia to. Uh, create a, a a blockchain system which is currently tracking about fifteen percent of the antarctic to fish supply but they they're also doing other commodities now as well um, including uh, coffee and and I believe cotton and they're looking at beef and, and and other things as well because you know it doesn't matter whether it's fish or fiber or, or whatever you know commodities if you can transparently trace them from their you know, to prove provenance from their their source to their ultimately to their uh, final fate. Um, you know that creates a lot of power in the markets and in consumers to to be able to drive behavior at the level of the the producers to ensure that they're not sourcing whatever they're buying from um, companies that are engaged in in terrible activities like um, human slavery or human rights abuses, you know, labor abuses or um, poor environmental practices uh, so um, so yeah that's that's the basic three buckets on a daily basis that um i'm working within um and, and then there's you know also occasionally some things that that um uh that come up like uh, you know the uh, work with um, mercatus uh, center uh you know where we're invited to participate as part of um Uh, larger initiatives aimed at some of the big policy issues that um, uh, provide an academic opportunity to look at these things. And it's one of the things I really valued about um, that meeting in in Pittsburgh. And so I I guess one other aspect of work that I've become increasingly more involved in, and it relates to both the technology and kind of the policy and analytical space and not an area I expected to find myself in, um, ever. Um, but uh, you know, during the pandemic, it, it created a lot of opportunities to participate in a lot of these global fora that would normally be too expensive or, or too much of a challenge, or I couldn't really justify going to uh, participate in. But the uh, Association of Anti-Corruption and Money Laundering Specialists, or ACAMS, had a series of of conferences during the uh, pandemic that uh, they had invited me into. to uh, participated to talk about uh, illegal fishing and, and ways to address illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, or IUU fishing, um, and, and build some awareness within the financial community. And so, big financial institutions like the big banks and, and uh, insurance companies and, and others to, to build awareness for them that they could incorporate into their um, environmental, social, and governments or, or ESG uh, policies and. As a result of that, uh, suddenly I found myself as the uh, uh, the co-chair in the the Australasia um, uh, Environmental Crimes Task Force, and um, you know we're developing approaches and and methodologies and and basically tools for financial institutions to to do better due diligence and and actually you know find ways to identify better investments for them to make, you know, and and understand the consequences and the potential risks of investments that they make so that when they do their due diligence, if they come across a company that's been involved in a number of IUU infractions over the years, they can say, you know what, you're too much of a risk. You know, we, we can't afford to give you a loan to build your fleet out further or, um, you know, uh, that that kind of approach. So in effect, between the market work that WWF does on a global scale to support um, the markets only purchasing from uh, responsible and, and sustainable fisheries, you know we're also working from the finance end to, to help support the financial community to, to only make investments in those same responsible and sustainable um, companies so that you're basically squeezing the bad guys out from both ends. And of course, the hope is that in time, that that's what happens: is that only the the best performing companies and institutions remain, and and that there can be a level of trust from the the um, community to the global community that they're only purchasing fish from you know sustainable and ethical and responsible sources, as opposed to uh, not knowing where your fish might come from and whether it's the product of human misery or not.
0: Listening to you reminded me now of a conversation that I remember hearing about during the workshop in Pittsburgh where I met you last year. And this was about an agreement among a series of Pacific Island states to collectively manage their fisheries. I believe this was called the Parties to the Nauru Agreement. Could you um, talk about this, how it worked and how it's going? Yeah, so the... the-
1: Parties to the Nauru Agreement is a, a, a collection of eight Pacific Island states, um, which includes um, Solomon Islands, PNG, Palau, Republic of Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, <clears throat> a couple of others, and uh, they collectively came together because. Uh, What's unique about the Pacific that's different from the Atlantic or the Indian Ocean is that you have all of these small islands dotted across the ocean and everywhere a speck of sand, you know, rises above the the sea level, uh, they get an exclusive economic zone uh, or EEZ that uh, goes around that, that they have the authority to manage the living marine resources within that area. And so there's a huge amount of power. With those Pacific Island nations uh, toward access of any country that wants to fish in their waters. Now, I- historically, the, the distant water fleets were were able to more or less divide and conquer, um, you know, the Pacific Islands. So they would play each other, each each of the islands against each other, and and ultimately the winners were those distant water fleets, and and those were everyone from uh, the U.S. to the EU fleets, the Spanish fleet in particular, as well as the Asian distant water fleets, which include China, uh, uh, Korea, Taiwan, and and Japan, when the islanders came together and said, "Look, you know, we we're not receiving the full benefit of the resource if we work together. If we work collectively, then uh, we would be, you know, it, it, the res- we receive much more benefit from the resource." And so that's what they did, and created this uh, collective treaty structure called the the Parties to the Nauru Agreement and uh, that gives them uh, control over the Persane fishery which is the the largest fishery by volume i think probably in the maybe not as big as the total whitefish fishery in the world but uh, but certainly as as a tuna fishery is the largest tuna fishery on the planet. And it catches mostly uh, skipjack tuna, which are the the smallest of the tuna that ultimately end up in in the cans that you buy in the supermarket that go into tuna salad and and, uh, your tuna sandwich and that kind of thing. And uh, so by putting that structure in place, uh, they were able to create a, an allocation program, um, which basically allocates vessel days. Uh, so it's an, an input restriction, but an allocation on that input uh, restriction is the number of days that a vessel is able to fish in a in a region. And so by doing so, they every day that a one of the distant water fleets fishes in their waters, they receive money for that day. And it's been hugely successful in that regard on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars annually coming to the Pacific Island states um, that uh, ultimately is to the benefit of those islands and, and the communities that depend on the, the fisheries resource. And, you know, I, I think also from a conservation perspective, you know, there's there's always challenges with any large commercial fishery with respect to conservation but the fact that those controls are in place uh, and that you have that allocation system in place, um, it's created closer to a reality-based fisheries management you know, system that, that we know much better now how much is being extracted from the system. There's a, a 100% observer coverage requirement for all of the persane vessels operating in the region. So we get a much better sense of... What's being caught where uh, and how much uh, than we did prior to the the formation of of the uh, party Scenario Agreement. So, you know, it's a good example of how those collective arrangements um, can come together, and particularly kind of a demonstration of of Eleanor Ostrom's longstanding critique of of how the the countries or or institutions or entities closest to the resource are most likely to manage the resource better uh, than the the roving bandits she referred to um, in much of her work. And and I think the PNA is a a good example of that because no one understands better the the need to manage a resource than, say, for instance, Tuvalu or Tokelau, which are tiny uh, Pacific islands that are wholly dependent on the uh, the income generated from the the fisheries that occur in their waters, and and without that resource, uh, they don't have roads, they don't have schools, they don't have hospitals, they don't have a government um, without the revenue generated uh, by those tuna resources, and so they understand sustainability at a a truly intimate level. That is really difficult, you know, for a a distant water fleet to appreciate where they can just, if the fishery in that region goes away, they just go somewhere else. And uh, I think it's a, a really good example of how an allocation program can be designed to bring maximum benefit to those resource holders that, you know, most depend on it.
0: I mean, I like how you mentioned Eleanor Ostrom's work here in this context. This case has the feeling of an example of successful collective action among a group of fishers, at least that's the image that it conjures for me, which maybe reflects my background on community-based management.
1: Yeah, the difference is, though, you know, most of these countries don't have their own fleets. Um, and for a variety of reasons, some of them just simply don't, they don't have their own ports. Uh, they don't have the facilities um, or or even the geography to support a port. So they they have to rely on those distant water vessels to come in and fish the resource for them. And prior to the, the parties to the NARA agreement, you know, they had virtually no control over those uh, those vessels to come in and harvest all the resource and then leave. Now they have almost complete control over the Persane fleet fishing in their in their regions. And it's a, to the direct benefit of the communities and the people and the and just more generally the the broader Pacific community, the, the islands across the region.
0: I'd like to now turn to the fisheries policy workshop in Pittsburgh last spring and your motivations for going. You mentioned already the WTO subsidy issue, which which was one of the main topics of discussion there. And so, what brought you to the meeting?
1: I believe that to get back to my original comment, life is about chances and choices, and everything starts with a conversation and. I, I think these types of uh, events when they occur are really important because that's where the conversations often start. And when you can have those conversations in a a, a more uh, academic environment where decisions, you know, aren't need to be made, and it's very open, and people are uh, are, are much more collegial and. And able to to speak very, you know, to be quite frank, very honestly about some of the issues um, that are faced across um, a more global perspective. That ultimately is to the benefit of of everyone. That we can have those those open and honest conversations about what works, what doesn't work, and and have experts in the room from multiple different disciplines and perspectives that can feed into that conversation. That ultimately, you know, maybe it seems like a, a a small isolated conversation over a couple of days in pittsburgh but that rolls into you know the the white papers that we've we've done that have been published and and those get fed into broader regional structures like the regional fisheries management organizations or ultimately up into some of the the un discussions and what starts off as as just a you know a pebble at the top of the hill you know starts to pick up steam and and collect more momentum as it grows like a snowball coming down the hill and eventually you know somewhere down the track that becomes a reference that ultimately gets made into a, a decision that that has a, a huge impact on um, global policy related to fisheries and and I I think that's one of the things that that drew me to to being part of that it was just happenstance that it was a former colleague who had said, would you be interested in in uh, participating in this? You know, uh, I think he he wasn't able to make it, and uh, he said I'll forge your name on to the team there. And and I was like, yeah, I, I, this looks really interesting. This is very intriguing to me. And you know, I I was fortunate in that I I'd, I'd met uh, Eleanor Ostrom personally uh, before she had passed away at a, a conference, and I was very pleased that I was able to you know a guy named Bubba, you know, from Texas was able to share the stage with this you know prominent expert in in fisheries and it, you know it, she she always had a a huge amount of respect for me and and to be able to to go in and talk about some of the principles that that she advocated for i i was you know thrilled uh, to be able to to do that and so that's really what drew me um to the uh, event and, and participating. And I, and I was hugely thankful that I did, you know, I, I, I came home and I, I, you know, told my, my wife and my colleagues, I was like, I'm so glad I went to that because I, I just really, I felt energized after coming out of it. It's like, you know, we were talking about solutions and, and different approaches. And, um, you know, I, I kind of felt like it's like, we need more of that, um, you know, because it's real easy to get ground down as part of the decision-making process where, politics and differing philosophies and general entrenched positions just make it really difficult to to see a pathway forward. And being able to have that kind of open conversation that we were able to have in Pittsburgh, I think was was refreshing.
0: Yeah, I really felt the same way when I was leaving. Although I also remember getting stuck in traffic because of, a I think it was a Taylor Swift concert in Pittsburgh that weekend. <laughs> Bubba, did you have any specific... Uh, or did you have any thoughts specific to the WTO agreement?
1: Yeah, I think one of the critical features that we discussed with respect to um, the WTO agreement on subsidies was the underlying uh, challenge of if you have a country that is putting more money into chasing the resource than there is resource available, in other words, you know it's they're they're basically creating a false bottom in the fishery. Because whereas they would normally you know be out of business because they wouldn't be able to make a profit, they're able to continue functioning at a profit because they're subsidizing their vessels and they're mining the resource in the end. it's 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 a predicate for overfishing. And the way that you address that is just simply to eliminate subsidies um, to allow the fisheries to be subject to the the market, impacts of, you know, you, you only have so much to spend on bait, fuel and construction of the vessel and operation. And if you can't do it within those constraints, then um, you simply have to stop operating until the fishery can recover. And so I think that was a really, really important discussion to have. Um, but at the same time, as a, a good friend of mine here in New Zealand has reminded me, it's like, you know, um, uh, one man's fisheries subsidy is another man's development aid. Um, and you know there are uh, aspects to you know subsidy support that are important for you know particularly developing nations to be able to to develop their their fisheries and and their resources and and uh, it seems quite neo-colonial to tell them that they can't do that. Um, so you know th- it was good to have that discussion and be you know quite open about the challenges there. Um, you know I think that some of the countries that are reliant on subsidies for their fleets to operate are certainly not developing countries and and shouldn't be considered in any way, shape, or form such. but um, uh, but we also by creating a blanket prohibition on um, on subsidies, we're potentially limiting uh, the self-determination of uh, developing states and and that's not right either. I think one of the other issues, and I think has come to light over the last uh, few weeks, uh, with uh, some of the reporting from the Outlaw Ocean, is uh, the gross level of of human and labor rights violations uh, across many fisheries that uh, hasn't been effectively addressed. And you know that I think is a, a consequence of the lack of transparency over um, fishing vessels operating at sea and the way that crews are. Are sourced and and kept on board vessels and and um, and I think that those issues are are as important as the the conservation issues because if if you have companies and flag states you know the the countries responsible for um, giving their flags and basically making those vessels that those flags fly from the territory of those countries uh, allowing things like human rights violations and and labor abuse to to happen what ultimately amounts to uh, human slavery on board those vessels if if they're not meeting international obligations to those kind of issues then they're certainly not going to meet their obligations to to conservation and and to be quite honest you know i can't fault a crew member who is starving for eating an endangered albatross or turtle uh and certainly can't expect that uh, a crew member working on board a vessel is going to follow the the rules protecting you know various species that they catch you know to to protect those those endangered sharks or turtles or whatever when their own lives aren't respected, um, and and I think that's an important part again of the, the subsidies because basically that free labor uh, on board those fishing vessels or or near free labor, um, whether you know you classify it as slavery or indentured servitude or whatever that. Has ultimately is a it, it's a form of subsidy and it has a clear not just human impact but conservation impact in the long run as well and and I think that you know that is a discussion that that has been elevated with revelations from um, articles that have been posted in the the New Yorker. Um, and uh, and other various uh, outlets by Ian Urbina and his team at, at the Outlaw Ocean over the last few days that you know we we absolutely must address those issues and and if we address those human issues on board those fishing vessels then we will also get at the the conservation issues as well so um, yeah I think that's probably a, a good place to leave that
0: yeah this reminds me of the saying in my field that environmental management is really people management that governance is about people. Baba, I have one final question to ask you before we wrap up, which is, you know, you've worked for a lot of different organizations in government and for, say, the WWF. And the question is, what lessons do you draw from working for this range of organizations? Are there interesting similarities or differences based on, say, an organization being public or private, large or small? What, what patterns come to mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's easy to, for people to think, oh, well, the grass is always greener, but um, it really is true with respect to whether you're working public or private sector or um, various, you know, institutions, whether it's a law firm or, uh, you know, a, a government agency or a non-government organization like WWF or others and like we're all human institutions. And so there's always, you know politics. There's always uh, you know challenges. There's all kinds of uh, common issues across all of those institutions. That um, you know, I, I appreciate the time that I've spent with every uh, organization that I've I've worked with. I, I loved my time at, at uh, NOAA in Alaska. Um, I've loved my time with WWF and in the uh, capacity that I've played there. Um, I've appreciated my time working for. Other government entities, whether it was the United States Navy, uh, a a huge education there and uh, and with the Peace Corps, where, you know, when you really get your hands in the dirt and you're working alongside people who, you know, are are making an average annual wage of less than 300 US dollars, you know, you gain an appreciation in each one of those um, scenarios. So every experience is a learning experience and. The best that we can hope for is that we we take that experience away with us and, and we learn from it and uh, and we apply it in the next whatever next phase um, uh, might occur um, and so I, I yeah I guess the 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 short answer to your question is that um, I, I have valued every experience that that I've had uh, in in every capacity and if I was to advise anyone as to, uh, uh, an approach in their career to, to feel fulfilled is be open to the possibility of anything. And, um, and I think one of the the biggest challenges, something I always recommend to to folks who ask me is like, Oh, well, where, where should I, you know, how do I get into this career? Or how do I, um, how do I find a job, you know, with a, an NGO, like what you've got? And, you know, and, and my response is just be open and be flexible. You know, if, the, the worst thing that I've seen someone do is say, I want to work on this species in this field, in this particular region, in this city, in this, uh, with this institution. And if you box yourself in like that, you're setting yourself up for disappointment because you, you, you really don't know what else might be out there. You never know where you might find yourself uh, because I can tell you as uh strawberry blonde kid growing up on the texas gulf coast i could have never imagined myself living in new zealand you know 30 40 years later um yeah so you, you just have to take for granted where you are and and just never uh, allow yourself to to limit your imagination of uh where you might be uh, or where you could be um and so yeah, I, I, I again, I'm I'm very fortunate. I feel very lucky to have landed where I am because I could have never imagined being here before.
0: Thanks for sharing those those thoughts, Baba. Are there any final points you'd like to make before we wrap up?
1: Um, I guess just to touch on the importance of of transparency in the fisheries, and that <clears throat> you know, I think that one of the biggest impediments. To us being able to effectively manage fisheries is the fact that we, as as countries, as institutions, as as management authorities, we consider all of the information that's collected on fisheries um, as private or confidential to some degree, and we limit the sharing of it um, because we feel like we all have particular business interests or strategic interests. Uh, to keeping that information in silos. But when you do that, you basically undermine the ability to uh, to manage a collective resource. Yeah. Fish don't care about boundaries. Uh, we can draw all the lines on the map that we want. Uh, we can put all the restrictions in place that we want on our respective fleets, but fish are going to do what fish do. Uh, they have fins and they swim. And if we're not managing that resource collectively, then we are doomed to failure and unless we get to a point where we are more receptive to the idea of managing the vessels on, on on the water that are harvesting the resource and sharing the data on those vessels that that are harvesting that resource and and i mean all of the data you know we're we're constantly going to be behind the ball you know trying to manage resources you know and Fortunately, I, I'm optimistic, and that with new technology resources, electronic reporting, electronic monitoring, satellite tracking, and those kind of things, you know, at least now we're we're managing closer to a real time basis instead of relying on data that may be two, three, four, five years old. Uh, so we're actually you know getting to a point where we can make more timely decisions, but um, there's still and again, it's always a human issue. There's, there's limitations because of those philosophical, historical, political impediments, uh, to, to sharing data that, um, challenge us to, uh, to be able to, uh, effectively, um, manage fisheries. And, and, uh, and even though I'm optimistic, there's still a bit of a, a hill to climb before we get to the point where we reach a, a true reality-based fisheries management point. And, uh, Uh, But hopefully we can get there.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, InCommonPodcast.org. The InCommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.